open your Bibles with me to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. If God has uh, forgiven us in Jesus for all our sins, past, present, and future, why do we still need to repent and ask for forgiveness? And not only that, what does it look like to repent when we read in the Bible that God has forgiven us already? Those are some good questions that I know myself and I'm sure others of you think about often. And those are some questions that we're going to come across and find answers in today in Psalm 51. This is our second look at a penitential psalm, one of the psalms that shows a picture of a person coming to God to confess sin and seek forgiveness. Last week, Grady preached from Psalm 32, and where he showed us that when we sin, God desires for us to return to Him and receive mercy. And this week, today, in Psalm 51, we're going to see more of the why and the how we actually do that. And put briefly, Psalm 51 will teach us that because we're saved in Christ alone, we must repent by seeking restoration in Christ alone. Because we're saved in Christ alone, we must repent in seeking restoration in Christ alone. In other words, even though God has forgiven all our sins, past, present, and future, solely on the basis of Christ himself, we must still repent of our sin by humbly returning to him in the name of Christ. And under that that main point, that main idea, we're going to see four specific truths that help flesh that out more in Psalm 51. So to that end, uh, join me as we read Psalm 51. And if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Such a blessing to have God's Word in our own language. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you don't have a Bible with you, the words will be on the screen. Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in a sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. 
Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices. In burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Lord, your word is sufficient. Your word is truth. Please give us ears to hear, eyes to see you this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So you probably noticed at the very start of Psalm 51 a very significant description of what this psalm is about. Notice there above verse 1 it says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. If you're unfamiliar with that story, that's talking about Psalm 11, where King David, God's chosen and anointed king, who he had given his Holy Spirit to, and from whom Christ would ultimately come, who was the king of Israel, he commits many terrible sins. His first mistake was that he stayed home when all his army was out fighting. And then while he's at home, he then commits adultery with another man's wife, a man who was fighting where David should have been, out on the battlefield. And then in an effort to cover up his sin, he has this woman's husband murdered in cold blood by proxy on the battlefield while David's back at home. This is the background to what we're reading here in Psalm 51. And evidently, uh, David in his sin, which to even the most progressive of people in this world would still find sinful, he, he lived with his sin for some time until Nathan, a prophet, came to David and said this in 2 Samuel twelve thirteen. This is after Nathan has essentially called out David's sin, and David responds to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord, and Nathan said to David, The Lord also put away your sin. You shall not die. So here we are. David has committed a set of horrible sins against God. God reveals his sin to him, and then he assures David that he will forgive him. And what's David's response to that going to be? Well, one of the first things we notice about his response is his brokenness over his sin against God. Look, at, look in verse 3 where David says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David not only confesses his sin, but he confesses his constant sinfulness and his depravity. He says, my sin is ever before me. He confesses his sinfulness even more in verse 5. Look there. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, he's saying, not only have I committed this sin against you, but from my birth I've been nothing but a sinner. And then in verse 6, he simply acknowledges that he is confessing to God what God has already said is true. He says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David knows that it was God who revealed this sin to him, and he's simply telling God what he already has said is true. But then notice back in verse 5, we see the ultimate reason why David's heart is so broken over his sin. He says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Even though David had committed these horrible sins, and he had definitely still sinned against Bathsheba, against her husband, against his army, against the people of Israel as a whole, he says, against you, God, alone have I sinned. His heart was not broken because he had ruined his view of himself. His heart was not broken because his reputation was ruined. 
No, instead, his heart broke over his sin, ultimately because he realized he had sinned against God himself. Even though David had committed the horrible sin of adultery, he realized the essence, the core of his sin, was spiritual adultery. And friends, that's what we do, is it not? When we sin against Christ, we've been saved by him. He's become our husband, our bridegroom, the Bible says. And what do we do when we we sin against him? We cheat on him with something else we love more than him. After he's given himself up for us to save us, to make us his own. In church, that's why sin must break our hearts. Because we realize that even though Christ is perfectly beautiful, has perfectly sufficed all, all our sins, all our salvation, he's paid for it. But we still sin against him. So friends, we've got to be careful to evaluate our heart's response to him. The ultimate reason why our sins should break our heart is not because we've ruined our view of ourselves. That's a worldly gift that non-Christians have in plenty. Nor is it because that other people think badly of us now. That's just worshiping the God of ourselves. No, the reason we our heart breaks over our sin is because it's been against our husband, our bridegroom, Christ, who's united us to himself. See, church, the horribleness of sin, what David understood... The horribleness of sin is found in the beauty of the one we sin against. Not the specific action, and not even, though it's significant, the human we sin against. At the core, it's the beauty of the one we sin against that we scorn when we sin against him. That's what broke David's heart when he sinned, and that's what should break our heart when we sin, friends. We must remind ourselves of this, and I'm thankful for this text because in the culture we live in, even the mainstream Christian culture, there's a dangerous lie out there that once you become a Christian, sin against God is not as serious as it once was. It's not as big a deal because Christ paid for it. We take the truth of Christ dying for our sin and we flip it on its head, and then we live with the fact, the lie, that, oh, because Christ died for me, now the sin's just not as significant anymore. Does it, it's not as bad anymore. When, friends, it's still rebellion against God. And in a sense, the sin is now elevated. Sinners sin against God, but Christ isn't their husband. They should be expected to do that. They should be expected to rebel against God. But here we are, Christ's bride, and we cheat on Him. We sin against Him. So in a sense, sin is elevated. But, friends, the beauty is that we don't bear the wrath. We don't bear the punishment. We don't bear the guilt of that because Christ has taken it. Sinning in light of Christ and the cross does not belittle belittle our sin, friends. It makes it possible to be restored from the seriousness of our sin. So this is the first of the four truths that I want to touch on here in Psalm 51, that because God has saved us in Christ alone, our heart must break over sin. Because God has saved us in Christ, our heart must break over sin. This leads us to our second truth here, that because God has saved us in Christ alone, we can trust that He will always forgive us in Christ alone. Because He saved us in Christ, we can trust He will always forgive us in Christ. And we see this truth in Psalm 51, in verses 1 and 2, and then in verses 7 through 12. We see in those verses that even though David had received assurance of God's forgiveness, he still returned to God to confess his sin and seek forgiveness and restoration. Notice in verses 1 and 2, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, 
According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Notice that even though God had given him the assurance that his sin was forgiven, he doesn't simply say, oh, that's nice, I feel better now, I'm going to go on with my life. No. Instead, it was God's loving promise that he would forgive that drove him back to God himself to confess that sin and seek that forgiveness that he had promised. We see that more in verses 7 through 12. In verse 7, David says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop was the plant that God had commanded the Israelites to use to put the blood over the doorframe of their houses at the 10th plague in Egypt, at the Passover. And it was also the plant he said to use in the cleansing ceremonies for lepers. So in uh, David, using this image of hyssop here, he's simply confessing to God that, God, I need you to cover me from your just wrath. And I need you to cleanse me from the disease of sin that goes to my core. And then in verses 8 through 12, David continues, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So we're seeing that even though God had entered into a covenant relationship with David and had promised David that he would forgive him, David knew there was an undeniable stain on that relationship that needed to be cleansed and needed to be restored. But notice again, it was not David's effort to earn the forgiveness that made him return back to God. It was God's loving promise that he would forgive that led David back to return to God. He returned to God because he knew God still loved him and that he would forgive him and that he would restore that relationship. David's Humility and dependence on God here makes me think of the many places in the Gospels where Jesus compares receiving the forgiveness of God through him to a little child. And I think of the dependence on a a child has to their father or their mother and how amazing a picture that is of how we receive the forgiveness God promised us in Christ. And in that, I think I was thinking about a time in my life where I still remember and can look back on seeing that dependence a a young child has on their father. And uh, when I was a a kid, I used to like to play outside when my dad was working. We lived on a a small farm. And this particular time, I remember I was playing out in the woods. And on the edge of the woods, there was a burn pile of all sorts of trash and stuff that when it got big enough, we would burn. Because we lived out in the middle of nowhere, you could do that. And uh, this time, there were some fiberglass a fence post laying on the burn pile. If you don't know what those are, there's something you don't want to touch with your bare hands. And I remember my dad, I remember this very, very specifically, my dad coming to me and say, Preston, be careful, do not play or touch those, it'll hurt, it'll hurt. Well, I don't know, remember how old I was, but young enough to not listen and lost enough to not listen to my parents. And I, I touch and play with these uh, fence posts, and before long, all I know is that I'm feeling the sensation of hundreds of fiberglass uh, needles just eating into my hands. And in that moment, what does the child do? Do I do I sit there and try to pick out all of them and 
and make it better on my own? Do I try to wipe the tears away and act like nothing happened? No, I run to my dad and confess to him what I had done. Because he's the only one that could help. He's the only one that could fix it. See, friends, that's a picture of what David is doing here in Psalm 51. That's what seeking repentance and restoration from God looks like. When I disobeyed my father and it led to my pain and my hurt, which was my fault, why did I run back to him? Did I run back to him because I was afraid he'd be mad at me? No, if I was afraid he'd be mad at me, I wouldn't have gone. But I went back to him because I know he would still love me and forgive me and help me and make this right. This is how David turned to God and how we must repent and turn to God when we sin. When we sin, we have disobeyed God to our harm. We have hurt ourselves. We have scorned the most beautiful being in this universe. And our response is not to run away from God in fear of Him, nor is it our response to sit there and try to pick out all the sin that we have committed to make ourselves better. No, our response is to come back to Him for help and truly confess what we've done. That's the reality of the, fence, the fiberglass fence post. That's the reality of David, David's sin. Repentance is not doing self-punishment to try to earn God's forgiveness. It's not a work we do to earn that forgiveness. It's not, here God, let me, let me help, help you fix this. It's simply running to God, holding out our hands and saying, please help me. I've sinned against you. Please help me. Friends, that's why we return to God. Because in a real and bigger way of that illustration, David returned to God on the basis of his love for him. And today, church, when we sin, because God has saved us in Christ alone, we return to him when we sin on the basis of Christ's love. Even though from God's perspective, he sees our life before him like an open book where he has forgiven our past, our present, and our future sins, from our perspective, it's better to realize that God has forgiven our past and our present sins. But in Christ, he's given us the grounds on which he will forgive our future sins. Because he still tells us we seek forgiveness when we sin. We're still supposed to go to him to seek that forgiveness. He's given us the grounds by which we return to him to seek that forgiveness. So we don't simply hear the assurance of his forgiveness and say, Oh, that's nice, good deal. That makes me feel real better, a lot better. My conscience is clean, great. No. We return to him and we seek that forgiveness and that restoration. We do that by coming in the name of Christ. Look how Psalm 51 models this for us. We see in verse 2 that when we sin, we return to our Father and say, Father, I come to you on the basis of Christ's blood. Wash me with his blood and I'm going to be clean. In verse 7, we see that just like the Israelites used the hyssop to put it over their door frames to cover their sin and cover themselves from the wrath of God, when we sin, we come to the Father and we say, Father, count me righteous in Christ that I would be covered from your just wrath only on the basis of Christ. In verses 8 and 10, we, we see how we return to God and confess to Him, Father, I have forgotten the joy of your salvation. Remind me in Christ again. And then in verses 9 and 11, we return to God and ask Him, Father, forgive me in Your Son who on the cross took Your wrath and You turned Your face away from Him as You poured Your wrath out on Him so that that would never happen to me. Please do this in me right now. This is how we repent, church. The constant love 
of Christ leads us to return back to Him and confess our sin and seek that restoration. Looking back in Psalm 51, this time specifically in verses 13 and 15 and then 18 and 19, we see this third truth. That because God has saved us in Christ alone, we should respond to His restoration by joyfully proclaiming His glory. Look at how David does this. He responds to God after his restoration in verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Notice how this praise and this proclamation of God's glory is David's response to all that God had done. He says he will overflow with joy and thankfulness. And he's going to teach others that need forgiveness in God how great God is and how they can find forgiveness in Him. Look at verses 18 and 19 and notice that there is a corporate concern David has. This is not only about him and God. It's about others as well. His restoration with God after he sinned leads him to want others to be restored and for others to know God. He says in verse 18, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Here David is longing for the people of Israel to be restored and for the people of Israel to experience God's goodness, His mercy, and His restoration. I think these verses should make us think about how people responded in the Gospels to meeting Jesus and to to receiving the forgiveness of Jesus. Just think of the woman at the well, probably most famously, that when... Christ had exposed her sin and she realized who Christ was. She runs into the town and proclaims, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Couldn't this be the Christ? Church, that must be our response. When we receive forgiveness and restoration in Christ, the Bible paints a clear picture that the joy of experience, forgiveness in Christ overflows into wanting others to experience that restoration too. We've tasted and seen that God is good. We want other people to taste and see that too. Which reminds me of a, a quote that I heard a prominent preacher say one time that I will never forget. Talking about this, how receiving the forgiveness of Christ should lead us to, to do this. He says, if you say you follow Jesus, but you aren't helping other people follow Jesus, I'm not sure what you mean when you say you follow Jesus. If you say you follow Jesus, but you're not helping other people follow Jesus, I'm not sure what you mean by saying you follow Jesus. Now, many of you are probably thinking this is real easy for me to say because it's part of my job to help people follow Jesus. And I I get that, and I get that there's probably things that some of you with jobs and families that I can't fully relate to, how busy and hectic life is. But we know even in the midst of this busyness, Of all that's going on around us, God will never set us up in a place to watch us fail, to try to do something He's commanded us to. He always gives us a way to follow Him. The Bible still says that those who truly receive that forgiveness will want others to experience that as well. So I simply want to ask you, do you feel that burden now? Do you feel a burden and a desire for other people to taste and see that Christ is good and to receive that forgiveness If you feel that you're too busy or too afraid or don't know how to exactly do that in your specific situation in your life, friends, have you tried praying to God to ask ask Him to help you do that? 
I want to ask you this, friends, because there's even more joy to be had in bringing others in to the restoration of Christ. Focusing on what it looks like to follow Jesus leads us to our fourth and final truth from Psalm 51. In verses 16 and 17, we see that because God has saved us in Christ alone, we must now follow Christ with a broken and contrite heart. Because we are saved in Christ alone, we follow Christ with a broken and contrite heart. In verses 16 and 17, after David has experienced God's restoration of his sin, he knows that his heart still needs to be changed in order for him to follow God again. There he says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In other words, David is saying that while he could rush in and offer a sacrifice like God commanded for the restoration of his sin, he knows that would be wrong. Because why? What he says in verse 17 The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. This is what David knew God was after. He knew that God was ultimately after a broken and contrite heart in his people, a heart that is broken over sin and humble before God in recognition of his undeserved mercy. So here David is showing us it's possible to do the right thing in the wrong way, isn't it? David knew that this was why God had set up the whole sacrificial system. It was to bring his people to recognize their utter sinfulness before him. That their sin against him was so horrible that it took someone else dying in their place to make it right. So David knew that he needed to offer sacrifices, but he also knew that it was a sin to offer it with a prideful heart or a heart that didn't truly see his need of God's grace. There was a desperation and dependence God was after in David. And for us on this side of the cross, friends, we know that because of Christ, we don't offer any more sacrifices. In fact, Hebrews tells us that through the blood of bulls and goats, no sin will ever be paid for. So what was the point of the sacrifices, right? To to bring that dependence on them because they had to know that there was a person, there had to be someone that would be an all-sufficient Savior to pay for that sin. And we know, friends, that that person is Christ, the sacrifice that was made once and for all for us. There's no more sacrifice to be made. So the application for us today is that we must respond to that forgiveness by following Him with a broken and a contrite heart. That's our spiritual worship. That's our spiritual sacrifice we give in return for what we've received. A continual, broken, and contrite heart that knows that everything in our life we have, every spiritual good we have is in Christ alone. When I was seeking about Psalm 51 here, I thought about an experience I had recently when watching um, a lecture for for seminary that I was really enjoying. I was really, really enjoying all this teaching that the professor was was giving. I was feeling like I was learning learning so much. And one day I got home, I was really excited to watch, so I I set up everything. I'm ready to go, and I'm ready to soak this in. And I'm sitting there listening, and the professor is just going through really rich, deep, biblical truth and all of a sudden he stopped and he looked up at the rest of the class and he said if you right now think of yourself and if you honestly see yourself before God and think you know what I I, I can do this I'm gifted I I can do this 
He then scanned the whole class and said, if that's what you think right now, I'm very worried about you. I'm very worried about you. And when I look back on that moment, I felt myself melt. Recognizing how much I'd been carrying out all the things God had told me to do and put before me in my total self-sufficiency, in my total grossness of pride. I had failed to remember and live in light of the truth that I am a ruined sinner before God apart from Christ. That I am a helpless child before Him. And what He wants for me in response to that forgiveness is not my foolish self-sufficiency, but it's a broken, lowly, and contrite heart. Friends, that's what Psalm 51 is getting at for us today. A lot of times we're deceived by this because the people around us today can deceive us into thinking, and again, even the mainstream Christian culture can deceive us into thinking that spiritual maturity should be measured by how strong and capable we are. Oh, he's really smart. He knows a lot. Probably really spiritually mature. So he's got a he's got a big church. He can speak really well. He's probably really really spiritually mature. Friends, I believe Psalm 51 shows us a totally different reality. That spiritual maturity is seen in how broken, contrite, humble, and lowly we are before God. Spiritual maturity is seen in the intensity of our dependence on Christ. Not our greatness, not our giftedness, not our abilities. Friends, this is why every action of our Christian life must be done in total self-dependence, self-reliance on Christ. It's impossible for us to do anything without Him, Christ says. It's possible for us to read the Bible. It's possible for us to share the gospel. It's possible for us to try to disciple someone, all with a heart that is totally self-sufficient. We can feel like we've got a handle on this. We can do this. We've got everything right. We've got everything in place. But friends, Psalm 51 is after a childlike dependence, a desperation before God that is continually aware of our sin and our weakness and clings to Christ for dear life. This is the spiritual sacrifice God wants for us, friends, in light of that all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ. If we try to follow Christ to earn His forgiveness... That's a stench before God. You try to follow Him in self-sufficiency and pride. That's a stench before God. No, friends, Christ's power is made perfect in our weakness. And all He wants from us is a response to Christ's bloody sacrifice for us. is to come before Him and say, Help. I need you. I need Christ. Not one time when I was saved, but every single day until you take me home. Because God has saved us in Christ alone, we follow Him with a broken and contrite heart. Because Psalm 51 shows us that because we were saved in Christ alone, we repent in Christ alone. Friends, in closing, thinking about Christ's sacrifice for us, we have a chance this morning to dwell on that even more, to do what Jesus commanded us to do, to take the Lord's Supper as a reminder of this sacrifice for us. So, In taking this meal, I encourage all of you to use this time to reflect on your own lives and ask, does my heart break over sin because it's against God? Do I return to Him when I sin on the basis of Christ alone? Do I respond to His forgiveness 
by wanting others to experience it? And do I respond to that forgiveness by following Christ with a continual broken and contrite heart? Let's pray for this now, friends. And after I pray, Seth Rodebeck, one of our elders at Gateway, will help lead us in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Lord, we confess to you this morning that while everything in us calls for our condemnation before you, everything in your Son, Christ, calls for our acquittal, calls for our forgiveness, Lord, calls for our restoration. So, Lord, help us to see our need for Christ this morning, Lord. Help us to see the need for a broken and contrite heart before you in light of what Christ has done. Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Preston. That was a wonderful message as we come to the Lord's table this morning. I um, just want to read uh, 